I mean, who gets their own personal podium? I forgot about it, and then it's here waiting for me because Tim Matson's amazing. All right. Um, so in the season of talking about Lent, uh, I, <laughs> I love a challenge. I'm, for those of you who've ever played any sort of a game with me, I lose friends frequently because I'm way too competitive. And so, <laughs> thanks, Tim. Um, so I, I felt like when Lent was coming up, I'm like, a challenge? Great. I'm so in. Oh, people that think that it's hard, they're wussies, and just, just do it. I don't understand. You just do it. And the thing that I have realized over the last 33 years is that I think I am really good at self-discipline because I think I'm really strong. But the thing is, is I just avoid things that require discipline so that way I don't have to be faced with the fact that I'm actually quite terrible at it. Um, so as Lent started only five days ago, I have already tasted the bitter pill of my own humanity. And by day two, I was over it already. And I was trying to like will myself through it. Like, it's fine. It's fine. And inside, I hated Lent already. And I was like the one championing for us to do this. And by day two, I was like, this was a terrible idea. I hate it so much. So day two, I was already over it. So if you're already over it, you're in good company. Uh, I gave up dairy, which for me, the thought of ever ordering anything and saying, but no cheese, please. I don't know why you would ever do that. I don't know why you would ever do that. So that was a big deal to me. And then I also gave up no television, which is a big deal for me. I get home, and the way I decompress is by mindlessly tuning out. And I find myself sitting in my room, staring at the wall. It's 5 o'clock. What am I going to do for the next five hours until I go to bed? So it has been a real test of my, my own limitations and humanity, and it's been good for me. But five days in, you are in good company if you are hating it. Um, <clears throat> I don't like feeling like I'm weak. Uh, my own self-sufficiency is always my downfall in everything, and Lent is shining a magnifying glass on that. Um, I all often feel if I don't have something, it's because I didn't earn it. Uh, and if I can't do it, it's because I didn't try hard enough or I didn't work hard enough. Uh, if I can't convince you, it's because I wasn't loud enough because I always think I convince people of everything. Problem is, is I am learning through walking with Jesus and through the process of Lent that uh, I can't earn everything that I want and I can't do everything that I think I should be able to do. I can't strong arm my way into getting the things that I want most of the time. So I'm often left feeling inadequate and unqualified and insecure. At first I start off because I think that I'm strong. I always start off overconfident, right? And then as soon as I'm faced with the fact that my own humanness is deeply flawed and limited, then all of a sudden I'm discouraged and debilitated. So I feel like my life is a constant roller coaster between overconfidence and as soon as I'm faced with my own humanity, I'm immediately insecure and discouraged. Can anybody relate to that feeling? Right? Being a human is hard. It is hard. Um, all year so far, we've been talking about what it means to be kingdom people. We've been using this term, kingdom people, all year. This is our teaching series for the whole year. We're talking about being kingdom people. What we mean by that, what we mean by kingdom people are men and women who live their lives as though life is about something bigger than just ourselves, just the here and now. People who live like life is about the God of the universe who loves us and makes himself known to us through the Bible and through the person work of Jesus Christ. Kingdom people are people that are about the movement 
he began to lead all people to the heart of the Father so that we might be so caught up in the love of God that we become the people we were created to be. People living in loving, grace-filled community with their creator. All of this whole process of Lent is a process of refocusing, reorienting our lives to be in communion with the Father. So as we continue to talk about kingdom people, what it means to be people of the God, we all in this room, we enter into this discussion, we enter into this conversation, we enter into this journey as people with a shared humanity, a humanity that is defined by limitation and weakness. So if you're sitting here this morning and you feel flawed and weak and limited, you are in good company because everyone sitting around you is in the exact same boat, which is very comforting. It should be very comforting to you. So we enter into this as a bunch of people who are messy and broken and sinful and who most of the time probably feel a lot less godly and holy and set apart than we do inadequate and unqualified and insecure. The good news is, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is that our limitations in our humanness don't disqualify us from the kingdom of heaven. Our limitations and our humanness actually are the things that allow us to see that we need something more. Inherent in our very limitations, inherent in our very weakness, inherent in our very own sinful nature is the very realization that we are in need of someone and something more. And it's right there in that need, it's right there in that brokenness, in that humanness, in that limitation that God meets us. So the very point that we think disqualifies us or makes us not good enough is actually the very point that makes us able to see and meet with God. Does that make sense? Right, guys? You know what I'm going to tell you. I need some verbal affirmations. Does that make sense? Thanks, Pat. Forstall. So most of us spend most of our energy trying to not get to the point of where we need God, relying on our own self-sufficiency and our own strength, which is exactly where I land all of the time. But that is the sweet spot. So when we arrive at our passage today, Jesus, um, when he shows up in the, on the scene in the Gospels, things are really messy. Of course, there are all of these people who don't know God, who don't know who he is. And Jesus comes to make himself known to them. But what Jesus is going to address in the passage we're going to look at today and in our new series, he's actually going to address the people that do know God. He's going to address the people that are saying that they know him, the people that are saying that they're following him, the religious people themselves. So we're entering this morning into a new season, a new series, and we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, which is uh, a section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably Jesus' most famous teaching passage. And before I get started, I want to have a moment of honesty with you all. The Beatitudes are really hard to teach about. If you read... Any amount of commentaries, every theologian has a different idea of what the Beatitudes are talking about. Everyone has a different idea. And what started off as a deep frustration for me, because I want it to be black and white, and I want to know exactly what Jesus means, and I want to teach exactly what that is, what God has done in the process of preparing for this sermon is shown me that he knows what he means, and how he chooses to reveal that meaning and intent through different people over the course of time is his business and not mine. So I'm going to share with you what I feel like God spoke to me as I studied this passage in all of its messed upness that I'll prepare you in advance for. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. 
so Jesus uh, is going to be speaking to his disciples and the crowd that's come around him, crowd that is predominantly Jewish. What we're going to see him do, what we have seen him do time after time in his ministry, is bring the listeners back to the heart of the matter. We see that the Jewish people have become so obsessed with following the law, keeping the law, because of their past of not following the law, that they're, they're all about the rules. They're about the rules, and they're so about the rules that they've put rules around the rules to make sure that the rules don't get broken. So everything is restricted by rules. And Jesus comes in, and what he doesn't say is, you don't have to follow the rules. What he does is he cuts to the heart of why the rules exist anyways. And so he's going to go through a process of flipping everything on to uh, upside down to teach people that what you have begun to think the kingdom of heaven is about is not what it's about. You think it looks like this, and I'm going to show you it looks like this. We see throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you've heard, it, you've heard it said this, but now I tell you this. He's not undoing what was done in the, new t in the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it in a new way. He's getting to the heart of the matter. So from start to finish, we see in the Bible that God's purpose is to call out a people for himself. This people is to be a holy people set apart from the world, belonging to him, in all of its outlook and behavior. So in the attitude of the heart and the way that that heart manifests itself in action. And so they have, in, in, in an attempt to set themselves apart as holy and blameless and different, they've decided to set these rules up and rules outside the rules to make sure that they stay on track. And so Jesus is going to cut to the heart of that. So let's look at Matthew 5, verse 1 through 5 this morning. It says, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray before we get started. Lord Jesus, we just ask that you would be um, just so present with us this morning. We know that you're present. We know that you're here. But Lord, would you move in our hearts and minds in a way that, that we know that we met with you this morning? Would you speak to us through your word? Would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? Father, would you make my words your words? Would you make your words my words? And anything that is just mine, would you just shut it up? And would you speak to us clearly this morning, Lord? We give this time to you. We give our hearts to you. We sit open and ready for your Holy Spirit to do work in us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have these three blessed statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are the meek. So blessed is a hard term to nail down, especially in the age of hashtags. Everyone wants to hashtag blessed everything, right? You go on a beautiful hike and it's a sunny day and you're hashtag blessed. You find a parking spot at the mall at Christmas time and you are hashtag blessed, right? Uh, any number of things, we, we are, we're blessed. It's a blessing. We're blessed. Everyone uses that term. It's freely thrown around. It's flippant. It's casual. The term blessed in the Bible is not as casual, it's not as easy to pin down. It's not as easy as just anything good that happens to you is a hashtag blessing, right? What we see in the Bible is that it has something to do with something good that God does for people, okay? So let's not try to get technical and decide what it is and what it isn't. 
one of the translations is happy. That falls short because happy is fleeting, right? Happiness is fleeting. I have been deeply blessed by God in moments where I am not happy. So blessing is something good that God does because of who he is, not because of who we are when we are in communion with him, something that he bestows upon us. And we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. So for each of these different types of people that are described in the Beatitudes, in these first three Beatitudes, blessing for each of them looks like what happens to that kind of person when God interacts with them. So the blessing looks like whatever it looks like for God to meet us at our need for him, to meet us in whatever condition or circumstance we are. That is the blessing itself. The blessing itself is God. However he chooses to manifest himself at any given time, in any given way, through whatever means he deems appropriate, the blessing in itself is God. He is the blessing. The blesser is the blessing. What we find Jesus blessing in this passage is countercultural and revolutionary. He chooses to bless things that for the ancient Jews, for this time period, for these listeners, would not look like blessings. The poor in spirit, what sounds good about that? Nothing sounds good about the poor in spirit. Someone was like, you know what? I just want to affirm you. You are so poor in spirit. How many of us would be like, thank you, I'm blessed? <laughs> right? Those who mourn. How many of you think when you are mourning that you are blessed? How many of you, when you are crying from pain, you're like, I should Instagram this right now because this is where hashtag blessed is most appropriate. How many of you who feel meek and gentle and humble, potentially walked all over, how many of you feel like that is a huge gift and that God is blessing you in that? These are not strong and self-sufficient qualities, but Jesus is going to show us that in his kingdom, things are backwards and things are upside down. So we're going to unpack each of these one by one and go through them and talk about what they might mean. So the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to translate this in the Brittany Fenwick original translation, I'm going to call the poor in spirit the ones who know they need God. Those who are poor in spirit are the spiritually destitute. The poor in spirit are those who know that in themselves, without God, without, apart from grace, I have nothing to offer. I have no gifts. I have no abilities. I'm no one special. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not patient enough. How many of us fall into that category? Every single person in here. And if you don't know you fall into that category, you just fall into a different category of that. But you do. But Jesus says, blessed are the ones who know they need God. I say that, but I think that's what Jesus is saying. What he doesn't say is, blessed are the rich in spirit. Blessed are you who get it and know God and are killing it. Blessed are you who are Pharisees and Sadducees. Blessed are you who have it all together. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is in the kingdom of God, the ones that are blessed are the ones 
who have nothing to offer. The blessing looks like the fact that when we have nothing to offer, the kingdom of God is not, is not set up in such a way that we clean ourselves up and good ourselves up in order to merit his blessing. Being poor in spirit is not something to uh, um, aspire to. It's not, we don't sit here and during reflection time when we're processing with the Lord, we think, God, make me more poor in spirit. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you should try to be more poor in spirit. The difference is an acknowledgement that you already are. But that in that sweet spot of acknowledging and recognizing and knowing that you are in fact, apart from his grace, poor in spirit, spiritually destitute, you have nothing to offer him. That is where the blessing lies. Not because you are poor in spirit, but in spite of the fact that you're poor in spirit. Nothing to do with who we are, but everything to do with who he is and the way his blessings look in the kingdom. For the, for the Jewish listeners, they would think the pinnacle of religiosity are the religious leaders who follow the law. And Jesus is saying, no, who I'm saying is blessed is not the ones who are so pious and holy that they're better than everyone else. What I'm saying who's blessed is the ones who are broken and the ones who know that they need me. So what we learn from this first beatitude is that we don't need to be good enough. We talk about this so much here, but we are people prone to forget. And so if you are here this morning, I want you to hear that you don't need to be good enough. That you are not missing out on some blessing from God because you are not performing. The fact that you are not good enough is the very point where God meets you in your limitation to show you that he loves you in spite of that. And that the blessing he has for you is not based on what you do or don't do or how good or bad you are. It's based on your willingness to acknowledge that you need him so that you are opened up to receive his blessing, the blessing of his presence existing in the midst of your limitation. The second point B is we don't need to be, and it's a blank. You don't need to be anything enough. Fill that in with whatever it is that you struggle with. Some of us feel insecure because we don't feel like we have as much to offer as another person. Spiritual gifts are tricky because very clearly some of them are highlighted visibly more than others. And so it can be easy to sit there and think, I don't have as much to offer that person as that person. Man, I have the gift of encouragement, but that looks like I like writing notes to people and telling them how much I appreciate them. But this person has the gift of, I mean, you look at Tim Matson leading worship, and you're like, I, I clearly am not on the same level as that kind of gifting, right? But the way that God works is that we're all gifted in ways, in different ways. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a gift that he wants to use. But we, we are such people of comparison. And there's that age-old quote, comparison is the thief of joy, which I feel like is my constant struggle of, man, God wants to fulfill us and meet us right in whatever he has for us, but we compare ourselves to other people. You need to hear this morning that you don't need to be anything enough to receive God's blessing. Because of who Jesus is, those who are least qualified to inherit the kingdom are the ones who actually do. 
not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, not because of anything other than who Jesus is. He died for you. He makes you good enough. He qualifies you before the Father. He stands in your place. And because of who he is, the kingdom of heaven is open and available to you. In the midst of your inability to have anything together, to have anything to offer. The blessing for those who are poor in spirit is not that they will be made rich in spirit. The blessing for those who are poor in spirit is that the kingdom of God is given to you. The kingdom of God is open and available to you. Those who look like they have the least to offer and are the least qualified. If that's not blessing, I don't know what is. Jesus could have only said this one, and I think it encompasses the rest. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The right time was when we were broken and human and limited and weak. That was when he died for us. And that was when the kingdom of heaven was made available to the broken and the weak and the limited humans. Second beatitude. Beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I feel like if I was only given this one beatitude, I could talk for days on this one. But I'll try to make it quick. So, in the Brittany Fenwick translation, I've translated it for you. Blessed are the ones who mourn. Our blessed are the ones who know it's okay to not be okay. The ones who know it's okay to not be okay. If you're sitting there and you're hearing this, and you hear blessed are those who mourn, you would think blessing looks like you not having to mourn. God protecting you from things that won't be so hard that you are broken and mourning, right? Nobody, when they're going through a really hard season and everything is terrible, thinks, ah, this is a season of blessing. But when everything's good, when you get that new promotion, when you get engaged, when you have that baby, when whatever happens, we think, oh, I feel like God's just blessing me so much right now, right? But I think that Jesus is communicating something really important here. The ones who are mourning are blessed because the kingdom of heaven is upside down and backwards. What looks like strength is often weakness, and what looks like weakness is often strength. So what Jesus doesn't say is, blessed are the ones who are okay. Blessed are the ones who are not mourning. If you're not mourning anything right now and everything's good, blessed are you. That's not what he chooses to communicate here. What he chooses to say is, blessed are those who are mourning. Those who know, who feel safe enough to not be okay. I think we do a pretty um, questionable job as the church of letting people not be okay. We don't like pain. We are uncomfortable with people's pain. We're uncomfortable with letting people sit in it. We just want to clean them up and fix it. And so someone comes to you, and they're having a really hard time, and if you're anything like me, my first inclination is, 
what book can I give them to read? What Bible verse can I slap on their problem? What advice can I give them to just feel better because I don't like how I feel knowing that they don't feel okay, and so I just want to make them okay. What I have learned from my own process of deep grieving and suffering and tragedy over the last several years is it is so okay to not be okay. And in fact, we do the people of God a better service by letting them sit in their mourning. Because in their mourning is where they are blessed by meeting the comforter. If we push people past the process and just try to comfort them ourselves and push them into being comfortable again, they miss this deep, intimate, meaningful time of meeting with the comforter himself. We try to do God's work for him. So if you're here today and you're in a season of mourning, it's really important that the church tells people that it's okay to not be happy. You don't have to be happy. I think as Christians, if you've, if you've been in the church long enough, there becomes this tendency to slap on a smile, right? I think we're doing each other a disservice. If Remembrance Community Church can't be a community of people where we cry together, then we're not doing this right. If we walk in here and feel like we need to put a smile on our face so that people aren't uncomfortable with our pain, I, I, I can only speak for myself, but I don't want you to do that. I want these people in this room, in this community, to feel like if you need to cry, cry. If you're mourning, mourn. Because I believe that that's where we meet with the comforter. We don't ever need to be comforted. We don't have any reason to meet God in that capacity. So people, we don't have to be happy. And we don't have to power through. We don't have to just get over hard seasons. We sometimes just want to get past it. I just need to get through this season. I just need to get through this season. I just need to get past this. When God wants to go through it with us, you don't have to power through. You don't have to be strong enough. You don't have to be brave enough. You don't have to be smiley enough. Because blessed are those who mourn because they are met by the comforter. Not because of who we are, not because we should aspire to mourn more, not because we should look for opportunities to be depressed and mourn. That's not the goal in itself. But the beauty is that what looks like unblessing, being in some season where we're mourning, the blessing looks like that very moment of mourning is an opportunity to meet with the comforter. And if he himself is the blessing, then blessed are those who mourn because they will meet with him. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We experience this now. He is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We also know that this will culminate in a future fulfillment in Revelation 21, 4. It says, ultimately... When Jesus returns and the world is made right, it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So we taste now what will be consumed later. The reality that 
the God of the universe, our Father who loves us and knows us, is the same one who brings himself down and sits with us in the ash in the morning and mourns with us. And that can either be a, just a time of powering through in our own strength and our own self-sufficiency, or it can be a catalyst for intimacy with God. Third one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So meek is not a word that we use frequently, but some synonyms for meek are humble or gentle. Certainly in our society today, the humble, the gentle, the meek, they get walked all over, right? We live in a world where it's eat or be eaten, right? Look out for number one. I think Jesus is saying here that blessed are the ones who know who is on the throne and who is not. Blessed are the ones who are able to be weak and gentle and humble because they know they don't have to be God. He doesn't say blessed are the strong, blessed are the loud ones, blessed are the ones who see what they want and get after it. He says blessed are the meek. The meek are those who suffer and have been humbled, but trust that it's not their responsibility to clean it up or get revenge or make it right. They know who is on the throne. They trust that the one who is on the throne is the one who's in charge. When we know who we are and who God is, we can let God be God. And so those who look weak because they're humble and they're gentle, they have someone who is fighting for them. They don't need to fight for themselves. And so we learn that we don't have to be powerful. We live in a world where power is key. Power is money and power is success and power is influence. But we don't have to be powerful. We also don't have to validate ourselves. Coming from someone who is slightly louder than the average person, don't laugh, don't laugh. I feel like the idea of being meek is so foreign to me. Gentle. I, I don't know anyone who would describe me as gentle. I'm like a bull in a china shop. But so much of that is because I feel like I have to validate myself. I need to fight for what I want. If I don't fight for what I want, if I don't make sure my voice gets heard and my opinion gets heard, I'm going to get walked all over, and I will not be one of those weak people who gets walked all over. Because I am on my own throne in those moments. I think it's my responsibility to work it out. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We learn through this beatitude that because of who our king is, those who are gentle and humble receive the land. Some translations say inherit the earth. Some translations say receive the land. This word for earth or land, the translations that, that translate it as earth, um, I think it misses it a little bit because this word land it would have evoked something in the Jewish people. 
the land for the Israelites it, it is a symbol of God's promise to them. We see throughout most of the Old Testament is this struggle to get the land that he's promised them and keep the land that he's promised them and return to the land that he's promised them. And in the New Testament, awaiting a king who would return them to the glory in the land that he had promised them. The land is this symbol of promise. And we see the Israelites fighting for it and wrestling for it and struggling for it. And so what I think Jesus is saying here are blessed are the meek, the ones who know that it is God who gives the land. To inherit something means that it was not yours. You never earn an inheritance. You never work for an inheritance. You receive it. It is something that is given to you, not because of what you have done, but because the person who bestows it on you has done it. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is that the humble and the meek who understand that the battle belongs to the Lord, who understand that he is on the throne and he will fight for us, they understand that he will fulfill the promises he's made to us. We will inherit the land. We will inherit what God has promised to us because it's his and he is faithful. And when we trust him to dole out his blessings in whatever way he sees fit, we don't have to fight for ourselves. I don't have to be as loud and domineering. I don't have to be afraid to be gentle and meek and humble. Because he's on the throne and I don't have to be. First Peter uh, 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So, all three of these Beatitudes have something in common. And that's humility. An acknowledgement that we are human and broken and messy and weak. And those limitations of our humanness is right where God meets us. Blessed are we who are limited and human because God meets us in those limitations and humanness. Our weakness doesn't disqualify us from the kingdom of heaven, but rather when acknowledged in humility and surrender, it can be a catalyst for intimacy with him. The blessing that Jesus talks about here is that we receive what he's promised to us. We receive him. And that no amount of, of, poor, of poverty of spirit, no amount of mourning, no amount of gentleness and humility separates us from what God has to offer us, and that is meeting us in the midst of those things. So, we're going to go into a time of worship. Um, as always, we're going to have a prayer team over here, and all of us are processing this in our own way right now, but there should be some sort of a wrestle in us of recognizing, maybe I think I've got it all together, and I have forgotten that I need God. Maybe I've realized how messed up I am, and I know that I need God. There are people that want to pray for you. There is power in being prayed over. So I want to encourage you to come get prayer. We're going to worship in song. Um, this is time for us to sing our praises to God. We sing these praises in community together. Um, and so we want to worship him. And then we're going to take communion together. Um, so we want you to have some space and time to meet with the Lord. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us as we lead into that time. If we could hit the lights. I want us to just all bow our heads for a moment. Some of you are sitting here feeling poor in spirit, like you have nothing to offer, 
And what God wants you to hear in this time is that he has everything to offer you. Some of you are sitting here mourning right now. And he wants you to know that he mourns with you and he longs to meet you in the morning. Some of you are sitting here feeling like you have to conquer your own land on your own. And you don't. Some of you feel like life is walking all over you. And you need to remember that God who loves you and knows you and gave himself for you is on the throne fighting on your behalf. Father God, we love you and we praise you this morning and we ask, Lord, that you would meet us in our brokenness and our limitation and our humanness. That you would help us to taste heaven by tasting your presence this morning. That you would meet us and show us how much you love us and all that you have for us. If we would just pay, place our faith and trust in you. We love you, Jesus, in the name of your son. Amen.